Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The story of Joseph is not an altogether unfamiliar one. It's one we may have even learned from the youngest of our days. He was the guy that got the fancy threads, the, the multicolored or some would call technicolored coat. He was a favorite son, a fortunate son of his father. The 11th of 12 brothers, but the oldest child of his mother, Rachel. And Joseph lacked no confidence. He knew how well liked and regarded he was by his father. And he also had a very special ability to not only receive, but also interpret dreams. And he had no problem sharing those dreams with his brothers and even with his mom and dad and his family, especially when it talked about him ruling over them. We read a few chapters before our Old Testament readings begin. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And it wasn't just once. There would be a second time, just a short while later, where he would say to his brothers, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And for a second time, his brothers get the same message. I'm going to rule over you, just as a FYI, just you wait. But of course, his brothers did not take very kindly to this. In fact, they hated him for these dreams. They hated this smart aleck brother who seemed to get all the fortune and favor of their father, and so they plot to kill him. And then they realize, well, why kill him when we could just sell him, tell our father he died, and make a little profit off of it? So he is sold to some Midianites, Ishmaelites, and sold to slavery in Egypt. And there in Egypt, he works for a man named Potiphar and does quite well for himself until one fateful day when Potiphar's wife makes some rather scandalous false accusations against him. And so now Joseph, a young Hebrew man in Egypt, finds himself in prison. And there in prison, he gets to meet a few of Pharaoh's servants who themselves have got themselves in a bit of a mess, a bit of a jam, and they too are having dreams. And so he interprets them. And these servants leave, and with two very different fates, one survives and one does not. But it wouldn't be for a couple more years until Pharaoh himself started having very confusing dreams, dreams he couldn't make sense of when his cupbearer, that servant that Jared, uh, Joseph had helped interpret his dreams for, remembers that young Hebrew man who helped him out once. And so Joseph gets an audience before Pharaoh, and he hears Pharaoh's dreams and says to him, here's what they mean. There's going to be seven good years, seven years of plenty, and then seven years of famine. So you better stock up now, and you better find someone you can trust to kind of run that process, because it's going to get bad. And then we get to our reading from Genesis 45, a reading that occurs in the midst of that very famine Joseph said would come. Joseph now has been the one who was put in charge of distributing this grain during the fa famine. During this famine, he foresaw and 
planned accordingly for, for Pharaoh. And it is because of this famine that his brothers have to come to Egypt. Jacob, their father, sends ten of his brothers to Egypt to buy some grain so that they don't perish and die from a lack of food. And they appear to Joseph. Except there's one thing that Joseph can't quite believe. They don't recognize him. Sure, it's been a while, and yes, he looks probably very different. He may even be speaking Egyptian very well at this point, but they have no idea who he is. And so he makes them go back and bring their 11th brother, Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, the only other brother of his mother, Rachel, and they all 11 brothers come once more. And Joseph plants a good little trap placing a silver cup in Benjamin's bag so that when they leave with their grain, he has his men surround them and say, one of you has stolen from us. And finding the cup in Benjamin's bag, they are brought back to Joseph, and all the brothers realize what the punishment for such a theft would be. And they begin to offer themselves up one after one for, take my life instead of Benjamin's. My father could not bear to lose another one of Rachel's children. And then we finally get to our text. When Joseph can't hold it in any longer. Where he reveals to his brothers just who it is that has been giving them food to survive. He says to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. For they were dismayed at his presence. And so Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Do not be worried, frightened, dismayed. What an amazing moment this is. Joseph is able to forgive his brothers. Joseph is able to reconcile with the family he thought he'd never see again. And yet it's a moment that Joseph's brothers really can't themselves believe. They still carry that guilt for what they did. The fear of retribution that Joseph would enact, so much so that some 17 years after the family moves into Egypt, when their father Jacob dies, their first thoughts immediately become, well, surely now Joseph's going to come and get his vengeance on us. Surely now is the time that we are going to be on the business end of the retribution we should have deserved a long time ago. See, this account of Joseph, this very popular, well-known, well-rehearsed, and even Broadway account, this account is, on the one hand, about the incredible forgiveness for the tribe of Israel, the family of Israel, the family of Jacob, the incredible forgiveness and reconciliation that Joseph gets with his brothers. But if you listen to what Joseph says, you'll see very quickly that Joseph himself recognizes this is not about him being such a forgiving soul. This is not about him necessarily being so kind-hearted. But rather, this is primarily about how God has kept his promises to his people. It's primarily about a quite different perspective than just one that says, well, since Joseph forgave, I guess I have to forgive. 
It's a perspective that begins not in our text, but when Joseph was in prison, when he first appears before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, will you give me this interpretation? And Joseph's response is, it's not in me, but in God will you receive a favorable answer. And in our text, this man who has every right to be vengeful and angry, stubborn, get a little payback finally after all these years of heartache and labor, he says to his brothers, don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve a remnant on earth, to keep alive for you many survivors, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And even when Joseph's father, Jacob, Israel, dies, and his brothers are so worried that now we're on the business end of what we've deserved, Joseph says to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? You meant this as evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. See, it's quite easy to take this account and just turn it into how we need to forgive others better. And certainly forgiveness is a big part of our Christian life. But the great reminder of this account is in how Joseph approaches the matter. And how Joseph remembers that it's not about me, but it's about what God is doing even when I couldn't see it happening. How God has kept his promises to me and to our family, the same promises he gave to our father, to Isaac, to Abraham, all the way back to Adam and Eve. See, Joseph has to admit by the end of this account who it is that has been acting this whole time. Who it is that has been making these things occur. This incredible journey that he's been on. And it's not himself, it's not his brothers, but it's, it's God. It's God who has brought his family to this foreign land in a place of famine. It is God who has set Joseph over this food so that they may survive. It is God that has done so in order to preserve life, in order to provide for a remnant, in order to keep his promises to his people. See, God is the one doing the action here. And the first and perhaps most critical reminder that we have in this account is not how forgiving Joseph is, but how amazing the actions, the promises of God truly are, how they come to be. Promises that span from Genesis all the way into the New Testament and even to today. For it is Paul that would remind us that we are grafted into that tribe of Israel, that we ourselves are part of that remnant who survives because of Joseph is us who are grafted into that promise of deliverance, of salvation, the promise that God gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Moses, to David, to Solomon, and beyond. God does these things for his people. And as his people, we are called to live in accordance with his will. And we are called to forgive, don't get me wrong, but it's not because Joseph did it. We are called to forgive because Jesus did it. 
because God did that for us. It's an interesting reality at times and how easy it can be for us to say the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer and yet how difficult it is for us to put that into practice. Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Words we've said hundreds if not thousands of times right here in a sanctuary or during a worship service and yet when it comes down to it, words that are so, so difficult to live by. Words that are truly difficult for us to focus on when we've been wronged, when we've been hurt, when we've been betrayed. And yet they are words it is a great joy to confess, to believe, because it is not connected to what we've done. And it's not connected to what Joseph did in Egypt. But they're words connected squarely on what God has done for us. That like those brothers that came to Joseph, we are desperate. We deserve to be cut off. We deserve to perish. We deserve to not know the love and reconciliation, the care God has for us. And yet God offers up his son for the remnant. God offers up his son for the people of Israel. The people we have the great privilege of being grafted into. We are reminded in this account that like Joseph's brothers, we do sin and sin greatly, and yet in the greatness of God, we receive unmerited forgiveness. That we deserve the retribution that should be coming our way, and yet he has sent forth one before us. He has sent forth his son, Jesus, so that our very lives may be preserved. That is the promises of God that Christ enacts for us. It's reconciliation between the ones in the wrong and the one true living and holy God. We've been caught red-handed in our sin. God knows all that we have done. There's no hiding from the reality that should bring. And yet God does not hide his face from us. But God calls us to draw near. He draws us near to him and does so with tremendous love and affection for us. That God took that guilt away from us. And as those who have received such grace, we are called to give it to others. One of the professors I had at the seminary, a guy who's been retired for a while but still caught a, or taught a few classes on an emeritus basis, had the class I was in when he was talking about confession and absolution amongst Christians. And he shared with us at the end of that class that he and his wife have recently, in the last decade or so, made it a very personal practice to every single night confess their sins to one another. And then once they've confessed their sins to one another, every single night, forgive one another. And he finished this little story with a chuckle and a smile and said, but I wouldn't recommend that for any of you, <laughs> at least not until you've been married for quite a while. His point was Christians are absolutely called to forgive. Christians have received great forgiveness, but that doesn't mean it's easy. Forgiveness can be very difficult. Forgiveness can be very emotional. Sometimes forgiveness even takes time. But most of all, forgiveness certainly is not 
easy at times. And it wasn't easy for Joseph. Just before our reading begins, the first two verses of Genesis 45, we read what Joseph's reaction is just before he reveals himself to be their brother. We read he sends everyone out except for his brothers, and he begins to cry. He begins to weep, and to weep loudly. And of course, forgiveness wasn't easy to bring to us either. God had to go to great lengths. God had to endure great pain. God had to endure the suffering that we justly deserve so that he could declare to us freely and unmeritedly, your sins are forgiven. That quite undeservedly we are brought back into that tribe of Israel. And God did that very thing so that we would know the tremendous love he has for us but so too so that we can share that love and forgiveness with others. And so we examine ourselves this morning. We think of the the grudges, the pains, the feuds that we just can't seem to let go. Those things we hold on to, those things perhaps as hard as we try, we just can't seem to forgive. And we remember that it's not because Joseph forgave, but because God did that. Because God forgave that, and it's only with the power of that God that forgives us from all our sins, with his help, with his love, that we so too can forgive those who trespass against us. With that power and help of our loving Heavenly Father. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which which surpasses all understanding, Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.